The living world is a unique and spectacular marvel. Yet the way we humans live on Earth is sending it into a decline. Human beings have overrun the world. We're replacing the wild with the tame. Everything is set for us to win this future. We have a plan. We know what to do. There is a path to sustainability. That this vision for the future is not just something we need. It is something, above all, that we want. It's a path that could lead to a better future for all life on Earth. We must let our politicians and business leaders know that we understand this. It's been announced that farmers will lose half their former EU grants by 2024 and all of them by 2028. Farmers who embrace the new policy and farm sustainably and make space for nature on their farms and who want to improve their profitability, so invest in new equipment, they will all benefit from the new policy. There will be incentives for farming sustainably, grants to help space for nature and grants as well to help farmers buy new equipment. Welcome to the Salford University and Aquas podcast. Aquas is a not-for-profit commercial unit within the University of Salford. This initiative is linked to our applied work, restoring rivers and naturalising wet environments in the UK. We embed our work within the student experience and provide our students with access to live projects. In today's podcast, we're going to look at the impact of historic land use and upland management on flooding, farming and the communities and measures that can be collectively delivered to help tackle some of these issues. If we'd farmed conventionally, we wouldn't have been able to pay the mortgage. It's just a badly resourced, badly thought through system. It's it's crap. A lot of this is just food price. I'm as proud of the hedges and the pond and the becks and all the birds and the invertebrates and bats that fly them down the hedge. I'm proud as all that as I am with any, any cow that I've ever bred, you know, and, and, I'll, and I'll happily tell that to anybody that's coming around our farm. We're in a climate emergency, and that is what this podcast is all about. Can we manage our upland environments, use nature-based solutions to reduce downstream flood risk, support farming operations, the communities, whilst protecting the local environment and mitigate our changing climate? I'm Neil Entwistle, I'm a reader in river science at the University of Salford, and this is our podcast. As we remain in a pandemic, we're conducting this podcast over teleconferencing and I'll get each panel member to introduce themselves now. Okay, so I'm Nick Renson and I um, farm in Rennick, which is um, on the kind of East Fell side. Um, we've been here since 2012. Um, so I'm here with Paul and our two kids. Um, we farm about 350 acres. We've got um, sheep, cattle, chickens and a few pigs. Um, I was um, farmer's daughter, um, originally from Shropshire, and um, over the last, I'd say, six years have had a kind of growing interest in regenerative agriculture. Yeah, hi everyone, Adam Day. Um, I have spent uh, all of my career, over 30 years, working as a land agent and an auctioneer, mostly in Cumbria. Um, brought up in a hill farming community close to Cockermouth on the northernmost edge of the Lake District. For the last five years, I've also been the managing director of the Farmer Network, 
uh, an independent organisation that supports the farming community. Um, and I also sit on the Cumbria Local Enterprise Partnership Rural Panel, which advises the uh, LEP main board on rural issues and needs. OK, thanks, Adam. And now we've got a familiar voice on our podcast, Danny. Yeah, hello. Uh, quick recast. My name is Danny Teasdale. I run a community interest company called Ullswater Catchment Management and basically deal with farmers to work on natural flood management, uh, sustainable farming and conservation. Thanks, Danny. OK, now we've got a series of three Jameses. So first up, uh, James Robinson. Yeah, my name is James Robinson, a farm, uh, South Cumbria, a uh, family farm. Uh, we've been farming since 1875. I'm the fifth generation. Uh, always been interested in wildlife and environment, and we do what we can to farm on a, alongside both in a sustainable manner. We're an organic dairy farm, milking about 130 cows plus followers. Hi, Neil. I'm James Broom. My favourite colour is blue. I like watching Countdown in the morning. I farm just down the road from Nick at Lazenby on an estate. Whole estate's about 4,000 acres in total, but I just farm about 350. Drew beef and sheep and jumped on the regenerative agricultural bandwagon about two and a half years ago. And just happy, happy where we are and just trying to progress every year on each year, basically. My name's James Freebanks. Uh, we're a farm in Matterdale, a uh, family farm. A lot in common with the other people on here, farm, sheep and uh, cattle. Um, yeah, just trying to keep the farm going. Uh, I've written a couple of books as well. And yeah, just trying to look after our land and do that thing in our community. And uh, yeah, like James Broom was just saying, very interested in regenerative agriculture and kind of into soil and yeah, trying to learn all the time how to do things better. So that's our panel. So it was mentioned a couple of times about regenerative agriculture. So I wonder if we could start there and someone explained what that actually is. I'm probably, so I reckon Nick should have gone for this. She's more of an experienced ag regenerative agriculture up there with the, the can of castle. Basically, we're trying to improve soil health um, and just improve what's below the ground to, for many, many reasons, trying to again leads into the flood management trying to take in more water into the ground and then just allowing the ground to rest that give it plenty of time to rest and many other options but my mind's gone blank <laughs> can i come in in there sorry james i should have probably gone there um i i think the whole regenerative thing and i think it the word regenerative can sometimes annoy people but the way i see it is that everything we Try, we do every day we're always trying to leave whatever we're doing in a better state and I think for a lot of decades and James Rebanks is particularly good on this but we've had a, a take-all mentality and we've we've kind of pushed things to the limit and now we're kind of just stepping thinking we need to farm not just for our kids but their kids kids so it's a very long-term view and it's it's um and it is that rest period with the grass and it's understanding the soil and yeah it's just realizing that you don't we don't know much and there's loads to learn i think so where do you get a lot of your information from there's a few key players around the world so they obviously have their books and their youtube we spend a lot of time on youtube so there's people like gay brown joel salatin um richard perkins in sweden who are just way ahead of the game and and 
we just try and be a sponge and just pick as much up as you can. But then you also learn things locally. And also the other way you learn is by just trying things. And a lot of things go wrong, but when they do go right, you you know, it's, it's great. <laughs> so do, is this the same for all farmers or are some not quite as engaged as, as others? It's a horrible word, but it's a journey. And I think personally for us, we're kind of up against it financially when we moved here and we couldn't, if we'd farmed conventionally, we wouldn't have been able to pay the mortgage. So we had a kind of need to, to do things, to look at things differently. Um, and I would maybe question that some people haven't got that kind of pain, possibly sometimes, but that's not always the case. I think it's probably worth pointing out as well that there are a lot of people that are right across the whole spectrum of sustainability and looking into the soil as well, Neil. Um, you know, some people have are going sort of on the full regenerative spectrum and then they've tried it and they can see how it works. Other people are looking into different natural flood management sort of elements, whether it be hedgerows, et cetera, et cetera. The whole kind of suite of, that works, uh, you know, where, where you all are as well. So, I mean, I think from, you know, from my point of view and from working with a lot of the farmers in the area, one of the things that I wanted to get out from today was to sort of show that, there are lots of people that are doing lots of things so everyone is doing something there's a lot of there's a lot of anti-farming kind of rhetoric around at the moment and i wanted to uh, you know bring a group of people together to show that there's lots of folk doing lots of stuff and there's lots of good things as well and then what you can do so that so that it's not something that's imposed on everybody but everybody can access something and and then by folk doing this is where you can also see the benefits and where I always like to see the benefit. I always like to show that that there are benefits to this and to the natural flood management and better soil works for everybody. That's that that's just a given and and everyone will find that out eventually. Yeah, so it's clear that the government has got aspirations and there's drivers that they want to try and, and, and do. How does that information come across to you? Is it is it kind of dictatorial or uh, is it piecemeal or does it come through um, the local authorities? How do you get the information and what and what sort of drives you to make things better? Is it purely financial? Yeah, I don't think in terms of coming from government, we never we never hear anything joined up at all from government. You might get something uh, through about soils or about air or about uh, carbon or anything. But it's, it's always very, very much bits and bats from different departments and nothing ever is joined up. So uh, getting a joined up thinking from government would be good it'd be a good start um but i think a lot of farmers just do it because they want to do something i don't think there's um there's a um there's a whole drive from the industry to do anything i think it's individual farmers doing their own thing which kind of builds on and then once you get a bit of a snowball effect people see that things work things uh, in your locality on your neighbor or you might see stuff on social media and you get that bit of a snowball effect and once enough people start doing positive stuff be that allowing the hedges to grow bigger or doing regen stuff or maybe creating a few ponds, doing stuff with becks and rivers. Once people start seeing that that's, that good stuff can be done for, you know, on ordinary farms, you know, we're not talking about, you know, huge, you know, 10,000 acre estates or anything like that. Just start, a lot of ordinary family farms can do a lot of good stuff. And then once all those start to join together, I think that's when sort of good stuff can really be done. Like, you know, once we get a big sort of landscape stuff amongst a lot of stuff, stuff that Dan is doing um, up, up Mathilda Valley, like that's just, just you know, phenomenal, really, getting all those all those farms joined together and it'd be a real good model to use elsewhere, would that? 
Yeah, and I see that. And we do a lot of work monitoring a lot of these projects across Cumbria and across the country as well. But is there anything that specifically the Environment Agency or Natural England can do to work better with farmers? Yes, there absolutely is. From the experiences that I've learned about with our members in the farmer network, in the past, the delivery of projects, particularly in terms of environment and conservation, have been very focused on the aims of that project. And in terms of delivery to farmers, there hasn't in many cases been an appreciation of the farm business. And if we could impress one thing on all of the government agencies and NGOs who are going to be working with, and I, I say working with, I mean partner, and that's a really important word in the future, going to be partnering with farmers. The first thing they've got to do is appreciate the farm business and what the hopes and aspirations of that farmer, his business and the family are. And that starts with an understanding of what is actually going on, the, uh, happening on that farm. That has to be the bedrock of any future project in terms of delivery on the farm. And uh, I can't impress that heavily enough. So is there a bit of negativity aimed at farmers who are being proactive and doing the kind of new regenerative stuff compared to the, if you like, old school farmers in a way? compared to the to the new generation or using you know science or, or or using technology going back to what i said earlier as well people have got all kinds of different opinions i don't think anybody's sort of vehemently against anything it's just uh, it's different some of it's different and some of it's changed that's all it is it just gives but i don't think anybody's sort of trying to run it down or that kind of, there isn't there isn't a kind of there isn't a kind of us and them sort of mentality. It's different and it takes a while for sort of mindsets to catch up and things like that, but that's all. But, but it, we're, we're all human, everyone's human and everyone has different opinions. That's all it is. I don't, I don't think there's any kind of massive, you know, massive issue against it. And if someone's making their farm more sustainable and they can see the benefits of cutting down input costs, et cetera, et cetera, it all just helps make a more more you know a, a more viable farm business which ultimately is, is a very important part of it so in terms of informing others about the benefits of the projects that have been undertaken or completed how do you find out about these different projects how does the information get disseminated to different from my perspective if you if you're honest with someone you're straight with them and you do a good job then people talk amongst themselves anyways and that word gets around and people find out that way um it's just sort of it's being consistent it's being reliable and it's trying to well like adam was saying before whenever i go and look at something you you look at it from both sides you look at like right okay where where can we benefit where's the natural flood management benefits to this where's the nature recovery benefits fair benefits to it but then how will that work with the farm as well? And then once once you see it from both sides and you then you, you tie them both together, then you're more likely to engage with far more people then than trying to just isolate yourself with just a you know a handful of a handful of folk. Yeah. If there's one thing we've been absolutely rubbish at in the farming community is getting those positive messages out there of what has been done in the past. 
Now, whether you think stewardship or other conservation schemes have been any good or not, that's up for debate. But the reality is, I'll give you a perfect example. A farmer friend of mine, not far away from James and Nick, told me last week that they have actually planted 72,000 trees on the farm in the last five years. Nobody knows about it. He then told me about his neighbours further up the fell side and all of the conservation stewardship work they've done, planting trees, planting hedges. Nobody knows about it. We're not starting from scratch in all of this. And yes, it's going to be done differently. It's going to be done better in the past because that's what public benefits mean. And that's what the government and the public expect. But we're not starting from scratch. There are a lot of good news stories. And a, and a classic example for me was I had the great pleasure of selling um, some Swaledale draft use from um, one of the members out of uh, Danny's group, um, selling them in Penrith Auction Mart. Really good quality, well-known Swaledale sheep. You know, uh, something to be very proud of. And that farmer is very proud of them. The next day, I heard him on local radio talking about a hedge planting scheme that he's done. And this is the thing I'm talking about, farming and conservation working side by side. And it can work really, really well. Um, we've just got to get new stories out. Little things like planting hedges and the farmer was able to explain what the benefit was in terms of uh, the, the environment, environmental enhancement on the farm, but also the benefit it was giving him for his sheep as well. It's little things, but little steps can go a long way. If I forward this then to, to James Rebanks, how, what, what are your thoughts on how you balance farming with your love of conservation and do you get any negativity? Do, do we get any negativity? Uh, no, don't get any at all, really. I think some of the issues emerge if, if the changes are really quickly and maybe people around other farmers don't understand. Um, but as far as my neighbours go, basically I'm trying to farm as good a herd of sheep and as good a cattle as I possibly can. And... Uh, the fact that I'm grazing differently or I'm putting new hedgerows in, as Adam suggests, or I'm grazing in a way that Nicky or James might appreciate or uh, any of the others. Uh, no, uh, they probably realise I'm doing something slightly different over time, but we live in very small, close-knit rural communities. And even if people don't 100% agree with me on every day of the week about everything I might think we should do on our farms, that's that's not a massive problem. We can, we can still have a pint in the pub and we can talk these things through. Yeah, and I'm not 100% sure the things I'm doing are right anyway, and perhaps they aren't either. So over time, these things work themselves out, don't they? What Adam was saying, really, I think there's massive scope for for sort of win-wins on farms. There's there's a lot of less productive areas on farms where you can do ponds and hedgerows. Most of my farming friends are very interested in, through the work that Danny's been doing, interested in things like soil health or how to graze better so that you've been more productive with your grassland. The fact that those also have massive benefits for insects and birds and other things, why would you not want to do that? So yeah, you can set these things up as being tensions, but that's not what I'm living and seeing on a day-to-day -day basis in my valley and the next. And again, Totally reinforce what Adam's just said. Um, I think I know who he was talking about, and he was very polite not to mention their names. But yeah, that family also has some of the best hay meadows in the Lake District. They're, they're well known as, in the nicest possible way, as a sheep obsessive family, but they're also fantastic stewards of the landscape in large parts of the land that they manage. So yeah, I think we've got to get away from these us and them sort of polarised nonsense, really, and realise that most farming people are, are good people. They're trying to learn. They're trying to do the best they can. And, and very much what Nick said earlier, they're trying to make a living as well. And that's that's not easy. It's very easy to judge people that are in that situation. But if, if you're paying them a quarter of what they were getting paid for a lamb in 1970 or they're getting paid the same milk price as they were 30 years ago, they're under severe pressure. So 
I think we need to join up join up these concerns and, and start thinking about the tough choices that we'd have to make on trade policies, on how you support those farmers to get stuff done, uh, and paying the proper price for good food. We've seen we've seen in COVID that we need to produce a lot of food in this country, and that food security is a really important thing. Food security and food trust. I guess you as farmers are a key to unlocking some of the biggest challenges in our lifetime: flooding, conservation, trying to find sustainable farming solution. Without you, we've got no chance. We've got to work better with you. And it's really interesting that you say that the majority of the time you're getting your good practice through word of mouth. So is there any other way that we can get the message out and to try and inform members of the public, let's say, about some of the fantastic measures that you're doing, the interventions that you're doing and and the change from this historic legacy of that's what my father did that's what my father's father did i mean james robinson is a key you said you're fifth generation farmer so you've got to be doing things different now than what your great 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 grandfather did uh yeah we are i mean it was a much more mixed farm then there was um you know they would, they would have everything chickens um pig sheep dairy bit of beef but they would have also grown their own crops so you know we we import a lot of feed in, um, but we had exactly the same concerns on the weather and on you know on whether we had uh, enough crop for winter, uh, whether we could pay the bills, um, you know, have we had enough staff, everything, everything that all our concerns now are exactly the same as they were as they were then. Um, but I think we can we can probably learn a lot from the way that they that they did farm, and we have become very reliant on on imported, you know, uh, things like fertilizers and feeds and and everything and not just been maybe self-sufficient enough within our own area if not our own farm so um but being there is a little bit different in terms of uh you know uh needing energy for cows and that sort of thing than it is on uh, than it is on beef and sheep farms so dairy farms are a, a very tricky subject really for um when we start start mentioning regenerative agriculture it doesn't really work quite so well on a on a commercial dairy farm in fact it won't work at all so um i don't know how we get around that really um, well, I think, James, you're, we spoke about you trying to buy feed that without soya in. I mean, you are trying really hard to be as regenerative as you can be, aren't you? But it's not it's not easy, is it? Uh, no, it's not. And, and uh, we've been without soya and palm oil in our feed for 12 months, but it, it took a huge amount of effort to persuade uh, the feed company and the nutritionist that we could feed cattle without soya the you know the the, dairy, the modern dairy cow has kind of grown up really or developed and been bred to be fed on imported soya which um just does seem seem bizarre and completely wrong really but um but it it can be done it does cost a little bit more but there, there's going to be a huge movement in the next 10 years i think for having zero soya within the dairy diet for a lot of you it'll be a, it'll be a concern of supermarkets really and things so once they start talking about zero soya diets then people will sit up and listen and they'll have to make a change so but there's huge scope for growth for, for homegrown proteins in this country with um you know lucerne beans even just feeding high clover diets and that type of thing you, you can you can kind of get around it so uh, it just needs people to people to, to actually get on and do it any other comments anyone danny just from listening to this, one thing that seems to come back again and again that is probably quite overlooked, what James Rebanks was saying, what James Robinson just touched on again there, is this a lot of this is just food price. There are a lot of things that um, that the public want to see and they want to see nature recovery, they want to see conservation, they want to see natural flood management. But 
if they're still going to demand that food price is driven down to nothing. So how do we go around that then? Do we, I mean, there's no one going to encourage or incentivize higher food prices, not from a government perspective, because that's political suicide, isn't it? So how do we go around doing it? It just, it, it, it's not, it's not an easy one, is it? Just to try and find that. It sounds like we need to pay more for food price to allow sort of farming to take the foot off the gas a little bit and just to look into different ways. But this is going to be very, very hard to deliver on. Well, Neil, I'm just thinking, I don't know how much fl the flooding, is, the floods we had in, in 15 and in 2009, the, the damage that caused to the ground and then how much that costs. I think if we farm in, in a better way, we'll potentially be able to hold more water and then there'll be a saving to government other industries further down the line so i think it's 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 kind of making it a full circle rather than taking things separately because i'm assuming that with floods there's obviously huge cost to the utility companies and, and insurance and i think we've got to realize that we as farmers have got a huge chance to really show what good we can do and I, I'll probably be shot down for saying this, but some of the fells are overstocked, they are overgrazed. Some of the fields very local to me are overgrazed. And if we just farm a little bit differently and manage our grass a bit differently, we, we can show so many more benefits rather than being the problem. We can we can so easily be the solution. That's really interesting that you've said that. In our previous podcasts, we've talked a little bit about how potentially farmers can make their businesses a bit more viable in the future, maybe um, using things like ELMS, the Environmental Land Management Scheme, and maybe different types of products or utilising the making space for water to try and hold, where possible, water back in a catchment. Is that something that's potentially more profitable given the amount of grants and funding streams that are out there? Or is it something that's very difficult and administratively heavy to uh, undertake we're looking at um getting on some making space for water scheme possibly but the only one available at the moment for us is if we can get onto a higher tier stewardship scheme which uh we're going to be very very borderline for for points getting onto that uh if you're not in a and if you're not in the right sort of catchment either then you can't get on for that so there might be loads of people that are really keen to you know, to sort of make space for water. And there's and it is a good payment for that as well. And it's over 20 years, so it, it does pay very well. Probably pays better than farming that that marginal land for that, that length of time. But the, the to get onto that, it's really, really difficult to get onto that. Um, if they made it a lot easier, and it should be made easier. You know, things like that, getting onto schemes is just so hard. Um, you can see why people don't bother, you know. And then and then the payments on these things are so delayed. Um, yeah, it, it's... if they schemes easy to get onto, especially something like that, making space for water, which would be dead easy to do, then I think loads more people would actually get on and do it like so. It, it needs to come down from, from government down, really. Uh, Neil, can I can I jump in there? We we have quite a bit of our valley bottom in making space for water, and I do a lot of work with Danny and Eden Rivers Trust on that. We couldn't put about half of the land we wanted to put into it because uh, at the time that we were submitting our higher tier bid, the statutory organisations couldn't provide me with a plan for how I would how I would be doing the sort of river restoration work and the natural flood management on it. So I had to leave it out of the first application I did. I was reassured that I could go back in with a future application so that I could get paid for all the public goods that I'd produced. I now find out because at one end of that parcel of land we restored a hedgerow, 
the whole parcel of land was included without me knowing it, the number of the parcel of land in the previous application. And I can't get paid for making space for water and getting paid for producing public goods until my whole scheme ends. So there's, there's layers and layers of nonsense involved with this that's stopping good people trying to do the right thing. I'm, I'm not having a dig because ultimately it's taxpayers' money and, and good people at Natural England tried to help to do the right thing, to be fair. But if my neighbours say to me, should I try and go into making space for water? I'm gonna, I have to tell them that you, you're going to have to wait over a year for your money. It's highly complicated to get in. I need to pay a professional to do a plan that's going to cost me over £1,000 probably to do a plan to get in in the first place. And once I'm in it, um, I spend the whole time worrying I'm going to break some tiny little law or piece of sort of red tape. And then I'm going to get penalised and lose everything else I've spent years building building up in terms of a sort of environmental regs and all the rest of it. So you've got to make this stuff simpler. Get delegated funds, get people like Danny or Adam in the communities that we can work with. Get them to do a sort of bigger plan that stretches across more farms. Trust them to get on with it. Trust them to spend the money in the right way. And let's get loads of stuff done but beyond the farm scale at a landscape scale. We can do it. We're, we're more than capable of doing it. I'd just like to back up the point that James made there about administrative burden. Um, uh, the Farmer Network is currently running uh, a total of five uh, DEFRA-funded facilitation funds. Um, three or four of those are focusing on um, natural flood management. And the level of uh, administration that goes with running those particular schemes is enormous. It's so cumbersome, it's prescriptive, uh, it allows very little margin of uh, movement. And um, it's a shame because we're missing a trick here. There's so much more that could be done in that. And, and one hopes in the future with Elms that somebody somewhere can grab hold of it and reduce the administrative burden. I'll hold my breath on that. And the other point you made, Neil, at the start was about, you know, the value of Elms. Farmers being paid to deliver public benefits. And that's the difference in the future. There are no area payments. You will be paid for, for doing a job of work. And, and that's, that's no problem. Uh, farmers will embrace that. The difficulty is what are they going to be paid and what for? And there's a really big school of thought in the farming community and also some people in the conservation community who say if those payments are reduced from what they are, and we're pretty sure that's going to happen, that is not going to be conducive to persuading farmers to embrace something different. And it's a fine line because if, if livestock prices are pretty good as they are now in future years, some farmers on a commercial basis will be taking a really hard look at it. So if we really want the farming community to embrace Elms and embrace public benefits, delivery of public benefits under their farm business, it's got to be really careful how that's managed at government level and dropped down to us. The common that I farm on, which is farmed with 10 of the commoners, so it's not necessarily managed exactly how I would like it to be managed, but that's, that's by the by, I'm part of the community. People blame fell farmers for the way that a fell's managed, but that's not actually true. The scheme that it's just gone into for the next 10 years was proposed by Natural England staff. And without, without stirring something up or causing problems, when I asked why they didn't ask for something more ambitious, they said because you need Secretary of State approval to change anything on a common or piece of open land. They didn't have time to do it. They'd had no resources or time to come up with any kind of better plan. So you end up with this sort of rush thinking where some of you on the sort of good guys and girls on the statutory side haven't got the resources to come up with a good plan. We get presented with something that's way less than it could be. And then we all just we just talk, go on for 10 years with something which is it's not good for you. It's not good for us. It's not properly thought through. And that 
that's not a dig at Natural England or the Environment Agency or whoever. I, I actually find that the staff that I work with really good, to be fair, on the ground. It's it's just a badly resourced, badly thought through system. It's it's crap. I guess probably the the people who uh, may be coming up with the administrative things that are not talking to the people in the Environment Agency who are talking to you. Maybe there's something that we can do to ensure that that pipeline is is addressed because it sounds to me coming from what you're saying that whilst we're moving in the right direction it's administration it's paperwork that's holding you back it sounds like you all want to do the right thing that will reduce the carbon in the atmosphere by maybe creating some more wetlands it will help the sustainability of your farming it will reduce flood risk downstream so it's kind of ticking all those boxes but the thing that's holding everything back is administration Am I right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Forgive me for jumping in here. The, the best thing that's happened in our valley for years is some of the statutory organisations and the funders back in Danny. I don't like being nice to him publicly, but I'll do it for once. Uh, by, chuck, by chucking money at somebody sensible that's rooted and grounded in the community that I can approach any day of the week if I've got any concerns or worries, who understands my farm business, who... I know isn't going to go anywhere. I know in 20 years' time, if anything he does is wrong, I can chew his ear off. We all do. And he has to be answerable for what he's doing. But he's getting things done cheaper than anybody else can do them because he can cut out all the red tape. He's talking to all of us about pieces of land that maybe aren't that important to our farm businesses and looking at different ways to, to manage them. And then as we're learning, and I'm on a similar journey to Nick, I'm on a similar journey to James and everybody, and the other James and all the others here, as we're learning how to do things better, how to think better about soil or grazing and all the rest of it, if there's somebody like Danny around who's got a pot of money to do the things that are in the public interest with a minimum amount of red tape, we can get on and do it. Can't we, Danny? I mean, we can plant miles and miles of hedgerow. We can identify lots of boggy, plain, rushy ground where we can do better willowy scrub. We can have wood pasture on hillsides that cattle graze. There's lots of that there historically, but there can be a lot more. And we can graze sheep better. As, as Nick says, we can graze sheep much better. They might still be in the uplands, but we can find ways to do it better. But we, we need to resource the right kind of help in the right kind of place. And far too much of it is bureaucratic bullshit, really. Yeah, I'll, I'll absolutely, absolutely second that. It's... Uh... There are a couple of there's a couple of points that have really really helped me with with the CIC and and being able to do the work. One of them is finding the right people, the right people in the Environment Agency and Natural England as well. And it just means that when someone says, "Right, I've got an idea. I'd like to do this. How do I do it?" They come to me, and then I'm like, "Right, okay, that's." Oliver Southgate in the environment agency. That's so and so. That's someone, someone at the world of trust. That it means that you can link these people up. But I am very grateful to the environment agency for just looking at things slightly differently and in cutting through a lot of that bureaucracy, as in they've been doing it, then I can streamline it so much more. And it's good for them because they save money. It, it, in, in the end, they're more efficient. But I can deliver far more. And you go and look at a farmer, you go and look at a project, right, how are we going to do that? We work it out. I work it out with the, uh, right, okay, there's good local contractor lad, right, well, they know he's going to do a good job and he's reasonable, so we get him to do that. Bang, 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 we get the whole job done. It's done well, it's done efficiently, and everyone's got sort of skin in it, so they all, you know, they, they, they all stand behind it as well. It just, it just makes it so much simpler for me, and people just, it just works so much better. Just cutting out so much of that administration. 
All right, so it sounds to me, it, it comes down to how do we get more people like Danny who have that ability to create relationships <laughs> between party A with party B without the red tape, without the constraints. It's replicating what you have elsewhere. But that's 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 just pulling together the right people. There's 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 those people all over the place. It's just normally, you know, you're gonna get somebody everywhere in every community that's fairly grounded, knows their farming community, knows the people in the area and and likes the conservation and see it from both sides. That's all it's just a facilitating role. That's all I'm doing. It's just it's just tying folk together. Yeah, I mean, people like Danny are going to be absolutely crucial to any successful delivery of Elms, because Elms, it cannot be a national-based type of thing. It's got to be local. You know, things are so different uh, from our valley to the next. You know, you can't you can't have anything even on a even on a county scale. You know, everything is just it's going to be local knowledge, going to be local contacts, and local trust. Really, I think. Um, no offence to environment agency things, but I think the, there is still a huge mistrust really between farmers and environment agency. If environment agency come on your farm, you kind of think you're going to be there to there to inspect you and to kind of you know tick you off that you've done something wrong. Um, so having that, that 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 man in the middle, people like Danny, is just absolutely crucial. Really. Someone someone that people trust locally to kind of do the right thing, and they're not there just to just to tell them off really. So yeah, um, I'm I'm all for having local contacts really, and it's the only way that things are going to move forward. Can I just chip in? I think I think Nick and James and other people spoke about how they learn. And some of us are learning from YouTube. Some of us are learning from social media. Some of us will be going to the meetings that Adam organises or that Danny organises. And some of us are reading books and all the rest of it. I think you need to support that. Really, really support it. So we've had meetings, haven't we, Danny, where a soil scientist comes into this shed here where I'm at. And we'll put on a few cans of beer and a few sausage rolls. And you think no no farmer was going to listen to a soil scientist for two hours. Completely wrong. We had like 25 farmers in the room. They asked questions. People you, you wouldn't think were into soil or regenerative farming sit there for two hours and drill this scientist about how they can look after their soil better, how they can trap water better, how they can graze better. I, I don't know whether you call, call it education or what you call it, but we need to really back that so that Adam and Danny and other people like that, Nick does work on... Uh, social media and other things as well we you need to enable that so that we're getting the messages through as much as possible and it might be that people aren't on social media maybe it has to be in pubs in more remote parts of Cumbria or whatever Adam will have a better feel than me for that but uh, you've got to remember that these are humans they're not stereotypes they're humans and humans learn all the time and they're, they're, we're all on a journey it's a cliche but we are all in this journey of learning and I think you need to support that uh, yeah, I was just going to say the great bit about this type of farming is it gives all the power back to the farmer and they're, they're not reliant on the feed merchant, the fertilizer. So it it's it's really quite empowering for them. And they, you know, they start to understand the soil, learn how just basic things. And it sounds very patronizing, but learning how grass grows. We didn't really know how grass grew until we started looking at this. Um, and the other th point I just want to say is when when farmers do a great job it would be really nice if they were rewarded um not maybe financially just to say well done we had an inspection here uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were 0.1 of a hectare over on an area of 75.1 instead of 75 and we got a pretty damning letter about 0.1 of a hectare 
um, rather than saying well done over the last 10 years or five years or whatever you've you've you know you've looked after your trees you've planted they've grown and it's the carrot is much better than the stick i think danny and james between them there have absolutely proved the point that i was trying to make at the start of this podcast it's about partnership working and when you get the partnership right and the farming community is involved not only in the delivery but in the planning and the design that's where you get a lot of powerful uh, a, a powerful approach it's partnership working and that's coming up in the future with natural capital which undoubtedly will be put forward and planned by the conservation industry and given to farmers as, as maybe as a shovel ready sort of a project and what i'd love to see in the future is that farmers are actually on the front foot and are actually driving forward on things like natural capital and involved in the planning, involved in design and taking it forward. And that's that's a hope for the future. And in terms of, of, of learning, the way that works best for us in the Farmer Network, being a very grassroots focused organisation, is peer to peer. We find our members learn more by going to somebody else's farm and seeing somebody else doing good practice, new work, achieving things, it's far better than having a, a consultancy expert delivering a PowerPoint presentation in the classroom. And we can only hope in future that funding is available for organisations like uh, Ullswater CIC. For many farmer networks around the country, we're just one. There are many around the country. But we start that process of peer-to-peer learning. So important for the future. And the last quick point is that we have to grab our young people. We have to get hold of our young farmers mm. starting their careers and make them understand and help them that uh, when they're very young people, uh, their passion is livestock, sheep, cattle, tractors. We have to inbreed in them a sense that farming uh, also includes it also includes environment and conservation. It comes with the job in future. Adam's quite right. I, I think if the environmental side and even the regenerative agriculture side have made a mistake over the last 20 years, it's that they've partly because they've had to, facing scepticism, they've sort of carved themselves off as separate clubs. And I don't think it needs to be like that at all. In fact, the thing that drives people around here, as Adam well knows, it drives me to get up every morning, is you're trying to breed the best possible sheep you can, the best cattle you can. It's what James is about. It's what the other James is about, etc. And if you make it an either or, you're either a stock person, you're either a commercial farmer, or you're an environmentalist or a regen person. That's just a mistake. You, it's about bringing these things together. You can, you can farm. I, I think I have some half-decent herbic sheep, and, I, and I'm grazing them in a fairly regenerative way. I don't... It doesn't have to be either or, it can be both. Now, I accept what James Robinson says, it's probably really bloody difficult on a dairy farm that's trying to make a living in, in a sort of strict setup. But on a lot of our farms, that's more than possible. You can be in livestock nuts and look after your, your soil and your grazing properly. These don't have to be in opposition. I'm as proud of the hedges and the pond and the becks and all the birds and the invertebrates and bats that fly down the hedge. I'm proud as all that as I am with any, any cow that we ever bred. You know, and and I'll and I'll happily tell that to anybody that's coming around our farm, uh, and all the flowers that say, you know, everything. And it, once you get interested in that type of, but once you see, once you see the changes that you can make, you know, and stuff stuffs happened in my lifetime. Stuffs come back because of the reason, you know, because of the way we farm and stuff. Well, that's that's worth doing, isn't it? and that's as that's as valuable as a, as a breeding of the best dairy short on in the country to me, really. So, um, I was just gonna go back to Adam and James's point, like. Firstly, obviously, 
biggest thing was like spreading the message to people. Best way I learned was going up to Nick and, J Nick and Posh's port farm and they gave me a big farm tour, literally for an hour. I went back, applied all their techniques to my farm and two and a half years later, I'm seeing a huge difference as to I'm still being able to graze my cattle outside on grass. My sheep are still on grass. We haven't put any bales out or anything like that just yet. Or we've grown, instead of leaving a stubble field empty all winter, we've gone and put cover crops in. So now I've got winter feed for my sheep and my cattle, and then I give all them fields a nice big long rest for the winter. And then come lambing time, I don't have to buy in any feed at all because all oh, the grass is there, it's had a good break. And then I'm trying to apply these techniques to the surrounding, like the farm. Our farm's cut in half by a road, but it's absolutely it's like the M6 for dog walkers. And I'm probably asked a good three or four times a day, what am I doing in these fields? And if for me to pass that message on to the public, they kind of almost go and do it in their own garden. So I've convinced my mum and dad to buy, make a little chicken tractor, like up at Canna. And now my mum's moving her chickens around her own garden to make the garden more productive. And then she's using that chicken crap to put on a veg, and then they haven't bought a vegetable all winter, all summer, even all year. So, so can I just say, James, that, thank you for that. But we are hardly anywhere on the journey. But in the summer, we went to James Robinson's farm, and the amount of wildlife there was, in comparison to where we are here, was unbelievable. So, even though he's a dairy farmer. He's way ahead of us. <laughs> so you, you do. We are playing catch up because we're obviously only eight years in. So James has done a fantastic job and his pond. Oh, I'm jealous of his pond. Um, can I like Neil, I think some of you lot from the environmental organizations. Yeah, I can see what's happening. You're turning up on a farm on a rainy day in February and you're getting grumpy old farmer dad who says he's not interested, he doesn't give a damn, he's not in the mood for you, he thinks you're, you know, he thinks you're a dickhead or whatever. And you think that you think that's all farmers. And I, I would urge you just to take a chill on that. Just go away and have a think about it. What's really happening there is dad's in a bad mood on a bad day in February. Just try and think about it in the round. Yes, there are people in the farming community that have got quite short attention spans for some of these messages, and they're maybe a little bit stuck in the way and all the rest of it, and they don't want to change. But we, it's not bad. If you look at it in the round, I'm not surrounded by idiotic people. I'm surrounded by good people that are just on different stages of learning what's going on. And yes, some of them are always going to be sheep obsessives, and they don't want to completely change their fells. That's the truth. That's all right. But the question then is, how can you change things around them? Can we fence some gills off? Can we maybe have a cattle-only bit of fell? Can we do something interesting on a bit of land maybe where the sheep aren't as good historically? We need to be creative around what's really there and listen to people. So you guys really are the major part of the local community. Is there anything that you feel should be mentioned, uh, given your place within the local community that hasn't already been discussed? Danny? One one brief brief sort of last finishing point I think from from mine from listening to everybody else it shows how uh, you know everyone's prepared to do their bit and everyone is prepared to do what is needed and to help with the flooding side of it and as it got touched on before when you look at the cost of the floods to the insurance company etc I don't know how many billions Storm Desmond will have cost the county 
Uh, you look at the cost of hard engineering for flood defences downstream, millions and millions of pounds. But yet at the same time, you've got a group of people out there that can offer all these kind of services that they're prepared to integrate into their farm business. It just seems to me that this link needs shortened between people. And, and when farmers are, are, are there wanting to work with people and offer these kind of services, it just needs to be working with them. And Neil, can I can I just say something else? I'm looking at all of the faces in here. This is not the hippie fringe of the farming community. This Every single person I'm looking at here about 10 or 15 years ago would probably have thought of themselves as a conventional farmer or invent involved in sort of conventional farming. This is becoming, the, the kind of things you're wanting to see are becoming mainstream. They're things that are being discussed around the kitchen table in ordinary farming households. Yes, we might be slightly further, some, some of us more than others, but uh, might be further down that road. But this is, this is happening and it's happening everywhere. It really is, James, you're right. And I think that's one thing that's come through today. There's lots of great examples up at Cumbria and I'm sure there's examples across the country. If you want to get in touch, please put a comment in the SoundCloud, contact us on Twitter, or you can contact your local Environment Agency officer or Natural England officer. You'll find their details on the web. Once again, thanks for listening. Please look out for our other podcasts. And finally, I'd like to say thank you to the Environment Agency for their facilitation, the panel for their unbelievable insights and hard work, and to the BBC for their introduction soundbites. This has been a University of Salford and Aquas podcast. See you next time.